needy part of their soul that can be bought, and he knew that every individual also had a part of their soul that was resilient and could never be bought. It was only a question of which one was stronger. Okay, five dollars an hour. Suddenly, I was silent. Something had changed. The offer was too big and ridiculous. Not many grown-ups in 1956 made more than that, but quickly my temptation disappeared and calm set in. Slowly, I turned to my left to look at Mike. He looked back at me. The part of my soul that was weak and needy was silenced. The part of me that had no price took over. I knew Mike had gotten to that point, too. Good, said Rich Dad softly. Most people have a price, and they have a price because of human emotions named fear and greed. First, the fear of being without money motivates us to work hard, and then, once we get that paycheck, greed or desire starts us thinking about all the wonderful things money can buy. The pattern is then set. What pattern? I asked. The pattern of get up, go to work, pay bills, get up, go to work, pay bills. People's lives are forever controlled by two emotions, fear and greed. Offer them more money, and they continue the cycle by increasing their spending. This is what I call the rat race. There is another way? Mike asked. Yes, said Rich Dad slowly, but only a few people find it. And what is that way? Mike asked. That's what I hope you boys will learn as you work and study with me. That is why I took away all forms of pay. Any hints? Mike asked. We are kind of tired of working hard, especially for nothing. Well, the first step is telling the truth, said Rich Dad. We haven't been lying, I said. I did not say you were lying. I said to tell the truth, Rich Dad retorted. The truth about what? I asked. How you're feeling, Rich Dad said. You don't have to say it to anyone else. Just admit it to yourself. You mean the people in this park, the people who work for you, Mrs. Martin, they don't do that? I asked. I doubt it, said Rich Dad. Instead, they feel the fear of not having money. They don't confront it logically. They react emotionally instead of using their heads, Rich Dad said. Then they get a few bucks in their hands, and again the emotions of joy, desire, and greed take over and again they react instead of think. So their emotions control their brain, Mike said. That's correct, said Rich Dad. Instead of admitting the truth about how they feel, they react to their feelings and fail to think. They feel the fear so they go to work, hoping that money will soothe the fear, but it doesn't. It continues to haunt them and they return to work, hoping again that money will calm their fears and again it doesn't. Fear keeps them in this trap of working, earning money, working, earning money, hoping the fear will go away. But every day they get up, and that old fear wakes up with them. For millions of people, that old fear keeps them awake all night, causing a night of turmoil and worry. So they get up and go to work, hoping that a paycheck will kill that fear gnawing at their souls. Money is running their lives, and they refuse to tell the truth about that. Money is in control of their emotions and their souls. Rich Dad sat quietly, letting his words sink in. Mike and I had heard what he said, but didn't understand fully what he was talking about. I just knew that I often wondered why grown-ups hurried off to work. It did not seem like much fun, and they never looked that happy but something kept them going. Realizing we had absorbed as much as possible of what he was talking about, Rich Dad said, I want you boys to avoid that trap. That is really what I want to teach you. Not just to be rich, because being rich does not solve the problem. It doesn't? I asked, surprised. No, it doesn't. Let me explain the other emotion. Desire. Some call it greed, but I prefer desire. It's perfectly normal to desire something better, prettier, more fun, or exciting. 
So people also work for money because of desire. They desire money for the joy they think it can buy. But the joy that money brings is often short-lived, and they soon need more money for more joy, more pleasure, more comfort, and more security. So they keep working, thinking money will soothe their souls that are troubled by fear and desire. But money can't do that. Even rich people do this? Mike asked. Rich people included, said Rich Dad. In fact, the reason many rich people are rich isn't because of desire, but because of fear. They believe that money can eliminate the fear of being poor, so they amass tons of it, only to find the fear gets worse. Now they fear losing the money. I have friends who keep working even though they have plenty. I know people who have millions who are more afraid now than when they were poor. They're terrified of losing it all. The fears that drove them to get rich got worse. That weak and needy part of their soul is actually screaming louder. They don't want to lose the big houses, the cars, and the high life money has bought them. They worry about what their friends would say if they lost all their money. Many are emotionally desperate and neurotic, although they look rich and have more money. So is a poor man happier? I asked. No, I don't think so, replied Rich Dad. The avoidance of money is just as psychotic as being attached to money. As if on cue, the town derelict went past our table, stopping by the large rubbish can and rummaging around in it. The three of us watched him with great interest, when before we probably would have just ignored him. Rich Dad pulled a dollar out of his wallet and gestured to the older man. Seeing the money, the derelict came over immediately, took the bill, thanked Rich Dad profusely, and hurried off, ecstatic with his good fortune. He's not much different from most of my employees, said Rich Dad. I've met so many people who say, oh, I'm not interested in money, yet they'll work at a job for eight hours a day. That's a denial of truth. If they weren't interested in money, then why are they working? That kind of thinking is probably more psychotic than a person who hoards money. As I sat there listening to my rich dad, my mind flashed back to the countless times my own dad said, I'm not interested in money. He said those words often. He also covered himself by always saying, I work because I love my job. So what do we do, I asked. Not work for money until all traces of fear and greed are gone? No, that would be a waste of time, said Rich Dad. Emotions are what make us human. The word emotion stands for energy in motion. Be truthful about your emotions and use your mind and emotions in your favor, not against yourself. Whoa, said Mike. Don't worry about what I just said. It will make more sense in years to come. Just be an observer, not a reactor, to your emotions. Most people do not know that it's their emotions that are doing the thinking. Your emotions are your emotions, but you have got to learn to do your own thinking. Can you give me an example? I asked. Sure, replied Rich Dad. When a person says, I need to find a job, it's most likely an emotion doing the thinking. Fear of not having money generates that thought. But people do need money if they have bills to pay, I said. Sure they do, smiled Rich Dad. All I'm saying is that it's fear that is all too often doing the thinking. I don't understand, said Mike. For example, said Rich Dad, if the fear of not having enough money arises, instead of immediately running out to get a job, they instead might ask themselves this question. Will a job be the best solution to this fear over the long run? In my opinion, the answer is no. A job is really a short-term solution to a long-term problem. But my dad is always saying, stay in school and get good grades so you can find a safe, secure job, I interjected, somewhat confused. Yes, I understand he says that, said Rich Dad, smiling. Most people recommend that, and it's a good path for most people. 
but people make that recommendation primarily out of fear. You mean my dad says that because he's afraid? Yes, said Rich Dad. He's terrified that you won't earn enough money and won't fit into society. Don't get me wrong. He loves you and wants the best for you. I, too, believe an education and a job are important, but it won't handle the fear. You see, that same fear that makes him get up in the morning to earn a few bucks is the fear that is causing him to be so fanatical about your going to school. So what do you recommend? I asked. I want to teach you to master the power of money instead of being afraid of it. They don't teach that in school, and if you don't learn it, you become a slave to money. It was finally making sense. He wanted us to widen our views and to see what the Mrs. Martins of this world couldn't see. He used examples that sounded cruel at the time, but I've never forgotten them. My vision widened that day, and I began to see the trap that lay ahead for most people. You see, we're all employees ultimately. We just work at different levels, said Rich Dad. I just want you boys to have a chance to avoid the trap caused by those two emotions, fear and desire. Use them in your favor, not against you. That's what I want to teach you. I'm not interested in just teaching you to make a pile of money. That won't handle the fear or desire. If you don't first handle fear and desire and you get rich, you'll only be a highly paid slave. So how do we avoid the trap? I asked. The main cause of poverty or financial struggle is fear and ignorance, not the economy or the government or the rich. It's self-inflicted fear and ignorance that keep people trapped. So you boys go to school and get your college degrees, and I'll teach you how to stay out of the trap. The pieces of the puzzle were appearing. My highly educated dad had a great education and a great career, but school never told him how to handle money or his fear of it. It became clear that I could learn different and important things from two fathers. So you've been talking about the fear of not having money. How does the desire for money affect our thinking? Mike asked. How did you feel when I tempted you with a pay raise? Did you notice your desires rising? We nodded our heads. By not giving in to your emotions, you were able to delay your reactions and think. That is important. We will always have emotions of fear and greed. From here on in, it's imperative for you to use those emotions to your advantage and for the long term to not let your emotions control your thinking. Most people use fear and greed against themselves. That's the start of ignorance. Most people live their lives chasing paychecks, pay raises, and job security because of the emotions of desire and fear, not really questioning where those emotion-driven thoughts are leading them. It's just like the picture of a donkey dragging a cart with its owner dangling a carrot just in front of its nose. The donkey's owner may be going where he wants to, but the donkey is chasing an illusion. Tomorrow, there will only be another carrot for the donkey. You mean the moment I pictured a new baseball glove, candy, and toys, that's like a carrot to a donkey? Mike asked. Yes, and as you get older, your toys get more expensive. A new car, a boat, and a big house to impress your friends, said Rich Dad with a smile. Fear pushes you out the door, and desire calls to you. That's the trap. So what's the answer? Mike asked. What intensifies fear and desire is ignorance. That is why rich people with lots of money often have more fear the richer they get. Money is the carrot, the illusion. If the donkey could see the whole picture, it might rethink its choice to chase the carrot. Rich Dad went on to explain that a human's life is a struggle between ignorance and illumination. He explained that once a person stops searching for information and self-knowledge, ignorance sets in. That struggle is a moment-to-moment -moment decision to learn to open or close one's mind. 
Look, school is very important. You go to school to learn a skill or profession to become a contributing member of society. Every culture needs teachers, doctors, mechanics, artists, cooks, business people, police officers, firefighters, and soldiers. Schools train them so society can thrive and flourish, said Rich Dad. Unfortunately, for many people, school is the end, not the beginning. There was a long silence. Rich Dad was smiling. I didn't comprehend everything he said that day. But, as with most great teachers, his words continued to teach for years. I've been a little cruel today, said Rich Dad, but I want you to always remember this talk. I want you to always think of Mrs. Martin, and I want you always to remember that donkey. Never forget that fear and desire can lead you into life's biggest trap if you are not aware of them controlling your thinking. To spend your life living in fear, never exploring your dreams, is cruel. To work hard for money, thinking that it will buy you things that will make you happy, is also cruel. To wake up in the middle of the night terrified about paying bills is a horrible way to live. To live a life dictated by the size of a paycheck is not really living a life. Thinking that a job makes you secure is lying to yourself. That's cruel, and that's the trap I want you to avoid. I've seen how money runs people's lives. Don't let that happen to you. Please, don't let money run your life. A softball rolled under our table. Rich Dad picked it up and threw it back. So what does ignorance have to do with greed and fear, I asked. Because it is ignorance about money that causes so much greed and fear, said Rich Dad, let me give you some examples. A doctor, wanting more money to better provide for his family, raises his fees. By raising his fees, it makes health care more expensive for everyone. It hurts the poor people the most, so they have worse health than those with money. Because the doctors raise their fees, the attorneys raise their fees. Because the attorney's fees have gone up, school teachers want to raise, which raises our taxes, and on and on and on. Soon, there will be such a horrifying gap between the rich and the poor that chaos will break out and another great civilization will collapse. History proves that great civilizations collapse when the gap between the haves and have-nots is too great. Sadly, America is on that same course because we haven't learned from history. We only memorize historical dates and names, not the lesson. Aren't prices supposed to go up? I asked. In an educated society with a well-run government, prices should actually come down. Of course, that is often only true in theory. Prices go up because of greed and fear caused by ignorance. If schools taught people about money, there would be more money and lower prices. But schools focus only on teaching people to work for money, not how to harness money's power. But don't we have business schools? Mike asked. And haven't you encouraged me to go for my MBA? Yes, said Rich Dad. But all too often business schools train employees to become sophisticated bean counters. Heaven forbid a bean counter takes over a business. All they do is look at the numbers, fire people, and kill the business. I know this because I hire bean counters. All they think about is cutting costs and raising prices, which cause more problems. Bean counting is important. I wish more people knew it, but it, too, is not the whole picture, added Rich Dad angrily. So is there an answer? asked Mike. Yes, said Rich Dad. Learn to use your emotions to think, not think with your emotions. When you boys mastered your emotions by agreeing to work for free, I knew there was hope. When you again resisted your emotions when I tempted you with more money, you were again learning to think in spite of being emotionally charged. That's the first step. Why is that step so important, I asked. Well, that's up to you to find out. If you want to learn, I'll take you boys into the briar patch, a place almost everyone else avoids. 
If you go with me, you'll let go of the idea of working for money and instead learn to have money work for you. And what will we get if we go with you? What if we agree to learn from you? What will we get? I asked. The same thing Br'er Rabbit got, said Rich Dad, referring to the classic children's story. Is there a briar patch? I asked. Yes, said Rich Dad. The briar patch is our fear and greed. Confronting fear, weaknesses, and neediness by choosing our own thoughts is the way out. Choosing our thoughts? Mike asked, puzzled. Yes, choosing what we think rather than reacting to our emotions. Instead of just getting up and going to work because not having the money to pay your bills is scaring you, ask yourself, is working harder at this the best solution to this problem? Most people are too afraid to rationally think things through and instead run out the door to a job they hate. The tar baby is in control. That's what I mean by choosing your thoughts. And how do we do that? Mike asked. That's what I will teach you. I'll teach you to have a choice of thoughts rather than a knee-jerk reaction, like gulping down your morning coffee and running out the door. Remember what I said before. A job is only a short-term solution to a long-term problem. Most people have only one problem in mind, and it's short-term. It's the bills at the end of the month, the tar baby. Money controls their lives, or should I say the fear and ignorance about money controls it. So they do as their parents did. They get up every day and go work for money, not taking the time to ask the question, is there another way? Their emotions now control their thinking, not their heads. Can you tell the difference between emotions thinking and the head thinking? Mike asked. Oh yes, I hear it all the time, said Rich Dad. I hear things like, well, everyone has to work, or the rich are crooks, or I'll get another job, I deserve this raise, you can't push me around, or I like this job because it's secure. No one asks, is there something I'm missing here? Which would break through the emotional thought and give you time to think clearly. As we headed back to the store, Rich Dad explained that the rich really did make money. They did not work for it. He went on to explain that when Mike and I were casting five-cent pieces out of lead, thinking we were making money, we were very close to thinking the way the rich think. The problem was that creating money is legal for the government and banks to do, but illegal for us to do. There are legal ways to create money from nothing, he told us. Rich Dad went on to explain that the rich know that money is an illusion, truly like the carrot for the donkey. It's only out of fear and greed that the illusion of money is held together by billions of people who believe that money is real. It's not. Money is really made up. It is only because of the illusion of confidence and the ignorance of the masses that this house of cards stands. He talked about the gold standard that America was on and that each dollar bill was actually a silver certificate. What concerned him was the rumor that we would someday go off the gold standard and our dollars would no longer be backed by something tangible. If that happens, boys, all hell will break loose. The poor, the middle class, and the ignorant will have their lives ruined simply because they will continue to believe that money is real and that the company they work for or the government will look after them. We really did not understand what he was saying that day, but over the years, it made more and more sense. Seeing what others miss. As he climbed into his pickup truck outside his convenience store, Rich Dad said, Keep working, boys, but the sooner you forget about needing a paycheck, the easier your adult life will be. Keep using your brain. Work for free, and soon your mind will show you ways of making money far beyond what I could ever pay you. You will see things that other people never see. Most people never see these opportunities because they're looking for money and security, so that's all they get. The moment you see one opportunity, you'll see them for the rest of your life.
The moment you do that, I'll teach you something else. Learn this, and you'll avoid one of life's biggest traps. Mike and I picked up our things from the store and waved goodbye to Mrs. Martin. We went back to the park, to the same picnic bench, and spent several more hours thinking and talking. We spent the next week at school thinking and talking, too. For two more weeks, we kept thinking, talking, and working for free. At the end of the second Saturday, I was again saying goodbye to Mrs. Martin and looking at the comic book stand with a longing gaze. The hard thing about not even getting 30 cents every Saturday was that I didn't have any money to buy comic books. Suddenly, as Mrs. Martin said goodbye to Mike and me, I saw her do something I'd never seen her do before. Mrs. Martin was cutting the front page of the comic book in half. She kept the top half of the comic book cover and threw the rest of the book into a large cardboard box. When I asked her what she did with the comic books, she said, I throw them away. I give the top half of the cover back to the comic book distributor for credit when he brings in the new comics. He's coming in an hour. Mike and I waited for an hour. Soon, the distributor arrived, and I asked him if we could have the comic books. To my delight, he said, You can have them if you work for this store and do not resell them. Remember our old business partnership? Well, Mike and I revived it. Using a spare room in Mike's basement, we began piling hundreds of comic books in that room. Soon, our comic book library was open to the public. We hired Mike's younger sister, who loved to study, to be head librarian. She charged each child 10 cents admission to the library, which was open from 2.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. every day after school. The customers, the children of the neighborhood, could read as many comics as they wanted in two hours. It was a bargain for them since a comic cost 10 cents each, and they could read five or six in two hours. Mike's sister would check the kids as they left to make sure they weren't borrowing any comic books. She also kept the books, logging in how many kids showed up each day, who they were, and any comments they might have. Mike and I averaged $9.50 per week over a three-month period. We paid his sister $1 a week and allowed her to read the comics for free, which she rarely did since she was always studying. Mike and I kept our agreement by working in the store every Saturday and collecting all the comic books from the different stores. We kept our agreement to the distributor by not selling any comic books. We burned them once they got too tattered. We tried opening a branch office, but we could never quite find someone as trustworthy and dedicated as Mike's sister. At an early age, we found out how hard it was to find good staff. Three months after the library first opened, a fight broke out in the room. Some bullies from another neighborhood pushed their way in, and Mike's dad suggested we shut down the business. So our comic book business shut down, and we stopped working on Saturdays at the convenience store. But Rich Dad was excited because he had new things he wanted to teach us. He was happy because we had learned our first lessons so well. We learned to make money work for us. By not getting paid for our work at the store, we were forced to use our imaginations to identify an opportunity to make money. By starting our own business, the comic book library, we were in control of our own finances, not dependent on an employer. The best part was that our business generated money for us even when we weren't physically there. Our money worked for us. Instead of paying us money, Rich Dad had given us so much more. Chapter 2 Lesson 2 Why Teach Financial Literacy It's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. In 1990, Mike took over his father's empire and is, in fact, doing a better job than his dad did. We see each other once or twice a year on the golf course. He and his wife are wealthier than you can imagine. Rich Dad's empire is in great hands, and Mike is now grooming his son to take his place, as his dad had groomed us. In 1994, I retired at the age of 47, and my wife Kim was 37. 
Retirement does not mean not working. For us, it means that, barring unforeseen cataclysmic changes, we can work or not work, and our wealth grows automatically, staying ahead of inflation. Our assets are large enough to grow by themselves. It's like planting a tree. You water it for years, and then one day it doesn't need you anymore. Its roots are implanted deep enough. Then the tree provides shade for your enjoyment. Mike chose to run the empire, and I chose to retire. Whenever I speak to groups of people, they often ask what I would recommend that they do. How do I get started? Is there a book you would recommend? What should I do to prepare my children? What is your secret to success? How do I make millions? Whenever I hear one of these questions, I'm reminded of the following story. The Richest Businessmen in 1923, a group of our greatest leaders and richest businessmen held a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Among them were Charles Schwab, head of the largest independent steel company, Samuel Insull, president of the world's largest utility, Howard Hobson, head of the largest gas company, Ivar Kruger, president of International Match Company, one of the world's largest companies at that time. Leon Frazier, President of the Bank of International Settlements, Richard Whitney, President of the New York Stock Exchange, Arthur Cotton and Jesse Livermore, two of the biggest stock speculators, and Albert Fall, a member of President Harding's cabinet. Twenty-five years later, nine of these titans ended their lives as follows. Schwab died penniless after living for five years on borrowed money. Insull died broke in a foreign land, and Kruger and Cotton also died broke. Hobson went insane. Whitney and Albert Fall were released from prison, and Frazier and Livermore committed suicide. I doubt if anyone can say what really happened to these men. If you look at the date, 1923, it was just before the 1929 market crash and the Great Depression, which I suspect had a great impact on these men and their lives. The point is this. Today, we live in times of greater and faster change than these men did. I suspect there will be many booms and busts in the coming years that will parallel the ups and downs these men faced. I am concerned that too many people are too focused on money and not on their greatest wealth, their education. If people are prepared to be flexible, keep an open mind and learn, they will grow richer and richer despite tough changes. If they think money will solve problems, they will have a rough ride. Intelligence solves problems and produces money. Money without financial intelligence is money soon gone. Most people fail to realize that in life, it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. We've all heard stories of lottery winners who are poor, then suddenly rich, and then poor again. They win millions, yet are soon back where they started or stories of professional athletes who at the age of 24 are earning millions but are sleeping under a bridge 10 years later. I remember a story of a young basketball player who a year ago had millions. Today, at just 29, he claims his friends, attorney, and accountant took his money and he was forced to work at a car wash for minimum wage. He was fired from the car wash because he refused to take off his championship ring as he was wiping off the cars. His story made national news, and he is appealing his termination, claiming hardship and discrimination. He claims that the ring is all he has left, and if it was stripped away, he'll crumble. I know so many people who became instant millionaires, and while I am glad some people have become richer and richer, I caution them that in the long run, it's not how much money you make, it's how much you keep and how many generations you keep it. So when people ask, where do I get started, or tell me how to get rich quick, they often are greatly disappointed with my answer. I simply say to them what my rich dad said to me when I was a little kid. If you want to be rich, you need to be financially literate. 
That idea was drummed into my head every time we were together. As I said, my educated dad stressed the importance of reading books, while my rich dad stressed the need to master financial literacy. If you are going to build the Empire State Building, the first thing you need to do is dig a deep hole and pour a strong foundation. If you are going to build a home in the suburbs, all you need to do is pour a six-inch slab of concrete. Most people, in their drive to get rich, are trying to build an Empire State Building on a six-inch slab. Our school system, created in the agrarian age, still believes in homes with no foundation. Dirt floors are still the rage, so kids graduate from school with virtually no financial foundation. One day, sleepless and deep in debt in suburbia, living the American dream, they decide that the answer to their financial problems is to find a way to get rich quick. Construction on the skyscraper begins. It goes up quickly, and soon, instead of the Empire State Building, we have the Leaning Tower of Suburbia. The sleepless nights return. As for Mike and me in our adult years, both of our choices were possible because we were taught to pour a strong financial foundation when we were just kids. Accounting is possibly the most confusing, boring subject in the world, but if you want to be rich long-term, it could be the most important subject. For Rich Dad, the question was how to take a boring and confusing subject and teach it to kids. The answer he found was to make it simple by teaching it in pictures. My rich dad poured a strong financial foundation for Mike and me. Since we were just kids, he created a simple way to teach us. For years, he only drew pictures and used few words. Mike and I understood the simple drawings, the jargon, the movement of money, and then in later years, rich dad began adding numbers. Today, Mike has gone on to master much more complex and sophisticated accounting analysis because he had to in order to run his empire. I am not as sophisticated because my empire is smaller, yet we come from the same simple foundation. Over the following pages, we will discuss those same simple line drawings Mike's dad created for us. Though basic, those drawings helped guide two little boys in building great sums of wealth on a solid and deep foundation. Rule number one, you must know the difference between an asset and a liability and buy assets. If you want to be rich, this is all you need to know. It is rule number one. It is the only rule. This may sound absurdly simple, but most people have no idea how profound this rule is. Most people struggle financially because they do not know the difference between an asset and a liability. Rich people acquire assets. The poor and middle class acquire liabilities that they think are assets, said Rich Dad. When Rich Dad explained this to Mike and me, we thought he was kidding. Here we were, nearly teenagers and waiting for the secret to getting rich. And this was his answer. It was so simple that we stopped for a long time to think about it. What is an asset? asked Mike. Don't worry right now, said Rich Dad. Just let the idea sink in. If you can comprehend the simplicity, your life will have a plan and be financially easy. It is simple. That is why the idea is missed. You mean all we need to know is what an asset is, acquire them, and we'll be rich? I asked. Rich Dad nodded his head. It's that simple. If it's that simple, how come everyone is not rich? I asked. Rich Dad smiled. Because people do not know the difference between an asset and a liability. I remember asking, how could adults be so misguided? If it is that simple, if it is that important, why would everyone not want to find out? It took Rich Dad only a few minutes to explain what assets and liabilities were. As an adult, I have difficulty explaining it to other adults. The simplicity of the idea escapes them because they have been educated differently. They were taught by other educated professionals, such as bankers, accountants, real estate agents, financial planners, and so forth. 
the difficulty comes in asking adults to unlearn or become children again. An intelligent adult often feels it is demeaning to pay attention to simplistic definitions. Rich Dad believed in the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid, or keep it super simple. So he kept it simple for us, and that made our financial foundation strong. So what causes the confusion? How could something so simple be so screwed up? Why would someone buy an asset that was really a liability? The answer is found in basic education. We focus on the word literacy and not financial literacy. What defines something to be an asset or a liability are not words. In fact, if you really want to be confused, look up the words asset and liability in the dictionary. I know the definition may sound good to a trained accountant, but for the average person, it makes no sense. But we adults are often too proud to admit that something does not make sense. To us young boys, Rich Dad said, what defines an asset are not words, but numbers. And if you can't read the numbers, you can't tell an asset from a hole in the ground. In accounting, Rich Dad would say, it's not the numbers, but what the numbers are telling you. It's just like words. It's not the words, but the story the words are telling you. If you want to be rich, you've got to read and understand numbers. If I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times from my rich dad. And I also heard the rich acquire assets and the poor and middle class acquire liabilities. Here is how to tell the difference between an asset and a liability. Most accountants and financial professionals do not agree with the definitions, but these simple drawings were the start of strong financial foundations for two young boys. An asset is something that puts money in my pocket. A liability is something that takes money out of my pocket. This is really all you need to know. If you want to be rich, simply spend your life buying assets. If you want to be poor or middle class, spend your life buying liabilities. Illiteracy, both in words and numbers, is the foundation of financial struggle. If people are having difficulties financially, there is something that they don't understand, either in words or numbers. The rich are rich because they are more literate in different areas than people who struggle financially. So if you want to be rich and maintain your wealth, it's important to be financially literate in words as well as numbers. Numbers alone mean little, just as words out of context mean little. It's the story that counts. In financial reporting, reading numbers is looking for the plot, the story of where the cash is flowing. In 80% of most families, the financial story paints a picture of hard work to get ahead. However, this effort is for naught because they spend their lives buying liabilities instead of assets. Everyone has living expenses, the need for food, shelter, and clothing. It is the cash flow that tells the story of how a person handles their money. The reason I started with the story of the richest men in America is to illustrate the flaw in believing that money will solve all problems. That is why I cringe whenever I hear people ask me how to get rich quicker or where they should start. I often hear, I'm in debt, so I need to make more money. But more money will often not solve the problem. In fact, it may compound the problem. Money often makes obvious our tragic human flaws, putting a spotlight on what we don't know. That is why, all too often, a person who comes into a sudden windfall of cash let's say an inheritance, a pay raise, or lottery winnings, soon returns to the same financial mess, if not worse than the mess they were in before. Money only accentuates the cash flow pattern running in your head. If your pattern is to spend everything you get, most likely an increase in cash will just result in an increase in spending. Thus the saying, a fool and his money, is one big party. I have said many times that we go to school to gain scholastic and professional skills, both of which are important. We learn to make money with our professional skills. In the 1960s, when I was in high school, 
If someone did well academically, people assumed this bright student would go on to be a medical doctor because it was the profession with the promise of the greatest financial reward. Today, doctors face financial challenges I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Insurance companies taking control of the business, managed health care, government intervention, and malpractice suits. Today, kids want to be famous athletes, movie stars, rock stars, beauty queens, or CEOs because that is where the fame, money, and prestige are. That is the reason it is so hard to motivate kids in school today. They know that professional success is no longer solely linked to academic success, as it once was. Because students leave school without financial skills, millions of educated people pursue their profession successfully, but later find themselves struggling financially. They work harder, but don't get ahead. What is missing from their education is not how to make money, but how to manage money. It's called financial aptitude, what you do with the money once you make it, how to keep people from taking it from you, how to keep it longer, and how to make that money work hard for you. Most people don't understand why they struggle financially because they don't understand cash flow. A person can be highly educated, professionally successful, and financially illiterate. These people often work harder than they need to because they learned how to work hard, but not how to have their money work hard for them. The story of how the quest for a financial dream turns into a financial nightmare. The classic story of hard-working people has set a pattern. Recently married, the happy, highly educated young couple moves into one of their cramped, rented apartments. Immediately, they realize that they are saving money because two can live as cheaply as one. The problem is the apartment is cramped. They decide to save money to buy their dream home so they can have kids. They now have two incomes and they begin to focus on their careers. Their incomes begin to increase. As their incomes go up, their expenses go up as well. The number one expense for most people is taxes. Many people think it's income tax, but for most Americans, their highest tax is Social Security. As an employee, it appears as if the Social Security tax combined with the Medicare tax rate is roughly 7.5%, but it's really 15% since the employer must match the Social Security amount. In essence, it is money the employer can't pay you. On top of that, you still have to pay income tax on the amount deducted from your wages for Social Security tax, income you never received because it went directly to Social Security through withholding. Going back to the young couple, as a result of their incomes increasing, they decide to buy the house of their dreams. Once in their house, they have a new tax, called property tax. Then they buy a new car, new furniture, and new appliances to match their new house. All of a sudden, they wake up and their liabilities column is full of mortgage and credit card debt. Their liabilities go up. They're now trapped in the rat race. Pretty soon, a baby comes along and they work harder. The process repeats itself. Higher incomes cause higher taxes, also called bracket creep. A credit card comes in the mail they use it. It maxes out. A loan company calls and says their greatest asset, their home, has appreciated in value. Because their credit is so good, the company offers a bill consolidation loan and tells them the intelligent thing to do is clear off the high-interest consumer debt by paying off their credit card. And besides, interest on their home is a tax deduction. They go for it and pay off those high-interest credit cards. They breathe a sigh of relief. Their credit cards are paid off. They've now folded their consumer debt into their home mortgage. Their payments go down because they extend their debt over 30 years. It is the smart thing to do. Their neighbor calls to invite them to go shopping. The Memorial Day sale is on. They promise themselves they'll just window shop, but they take a credit card, just in case. I run into this young couple all the time. Their names change, but their financial dilemma is the same. 
They come to one of my talks to hear what I have to say. They ask me, can you tell us how to make more money? They don't understand that their trouble is really how they choose to spend the money they do have. It is caused by financial illiteracy and not understanding the difference between an asset and a liability. More money seldom solves someone's money problems. Intelligence solves problems. There is a saying a friend of mine says over and over to people in debt. If you find you have dug yourself into a hole, stop digging. As a child, my dad often told us that the Japanese were aware of three powers, the power of the sword, the jewel, and the mirror. The sword symbolizes the power of weapons. America has spent trillions of dollars on weapons, and because of this is a powerful military presence in the world. The jewel symbolizes the power of money. There is some degree of truth to the saying, remember the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. The mirror symbolizes the power of self-knowledge. This self-knowledge, according to Japanese legend, was the most treasured of the three. All too often, the poor and middle class allow the power of money to control them by simply getting up and working harder, failing to ask themselves if what they do makes sense, they shoot themselves in the foot as they leave for work every morning. By not fully understanding money, the vast majority of people allow its awesome power to control them. If they used the power of the mirror, they would have asked themselves, does this make sense? All too often, instead of trusting their inner wisdom, that genius inside, most people follow the crowd. They do things because everybody else does them. They conform rather than question. Often, they mindlessly repeat what they have been told. Diversify. Your home is an asset. Your home is your biggest investment. You get a tax break for going into greater debt. Get a safe job. Don't make mistakes. Don't take risks. It is said that the fear of public speaking is a fear greater than death for most people. According to psychiatrists, the fear of public speaking is caused by the fear of ostracism, the fear of standing out, the fear of criticism, the fear of ridicule, and the fear of being an outcast. The fear of being different prevents most people from seeking new ways to solve their problems. That is why my educated dad said the Japanese valued the power of the mirror the most, for it is only when we look into it that we find truth. Fear is the main reason that people say, play it safe. That goes for anything, be it sports, relationships, careers, or money. It is that same fear, the fear of ostracism, that causes people to conform to, and not question, commonly accepted opinions or popular trends. Your home is an asset. Get a bill consolidation loan and get out of debt. Work harder. It's a promotion. Someday I'll be a vice president. Save money. When I get a raise, I'll buy us a bigger house. Mutual funds are safe. Many financial problems are caused by trying to keep up with the Joneses. Occasionally, we all need to look in the mirror and be true to our inner wisdom rather than our fears. By the time Mike and I were 16 years old, we began to have problems in school. We were not bad kids. We just began to separate from the crowd. We worked for Mike's dad after school and on weekends. Mike and I often spent hours after work just sitting at a table with his dad while he held meetings with his bankers, attorneys, accountants, brokers, investors, managers, and employees. Here was a man who had left school at 13 who was now directing, instructing, ordering, and asking questions of educated people. They came at his beck and call and cringed when he didn't approve of them. Here was a man who had not gone along with the crowd. He was a man who did his own thinking and detested the words, we have to do it this way because that's the way everyone else does it. He also hated the word can't. If you wanted him to do something, just say, 
I don't think you can do it. Mike and I learned more sitting in on his meetings than we did in all our years of school, college included. Mike's dad was not book smart, but he was financially educated and successful as a result. He told us over and over again, an intelligent person hires people who are more intelligent than he is. So Mike and I had the benefit of spending hours listening to and learning from intelligent people. But because of this, Mike and I couldn't go along with the standard dogma our teachers preached, and that caused problems. Whenever the teacher said, if you don't get good grades, you won't do well in the real world, Mike and I just raised our eyebrows. When we were told to follow set procedures and not deviate from the rules, we could see how school discouraged creativity. We started to understand why our rich dad told us that schools were designed to produce good employees instead of employers. Occasionally, Mike or I would ask our teachers how what we studied was applicable to the real world or why we never studied money and how it worked. To the latter question, we often got the answer that money was not important, that if we excelled in our education, the money would follow. The more we knew about the power of money, the more distant we grew from the teachers and our classmates. My highly educated dad never pressured me about my grades, but we did begin to argue about money. By the time I was 16, I probably had a far better foundation with money than both my parents. I could keep books, I listened to tax accountants, corporate attorneys, bankers, real estate brokers, investors, and so forth. By contrast, my dad talked to other teachers. One day, my dad told me that our home was his greatest investment. A not-too-pleasant argument took place when I showed him why I thought a house was not a good investment. I showed him the ancillary expenses that went along with owning the home. A bigger home meant bigger expenses, and the cash flow kept going out through the expense column. Today, people still challenge me on the idea of a house not being an asset. I know that for many people, it is their dream as well as their largest investment. And owning your own home is better than nothing. I simply offer an alternative way of looking at this popular dogma. If my wife and I were to buy a bigger, flashier house, we realize it wouldn't be an asset. It would be a liability since it would take money out of our pocket. So here is the argument I put forth. I really don't expect most people to agree with it because your home is an emotional thing, and when it comes to money, high emotions tend to lower financial intelligence. I know from personal experience that money has a way of making every decision emotional. 1. When it comes to houses, most people work all their lives paying for a home they never own. In other words, most people buy a new house every few years, each time incurring a new 30-year loan to pay off the previous one. 2. Even though people receive a tax deduction for interest on mortgage payments, they pay for all their other expenses with after-tax dollars, even after they pay off their mortgage. 3. My wife's parents were shocked when the property taxes on their home increased to $1,000 a month. This was after they had retired, so the increase put a strain on their retirement budget and they felt forced to move. 4. Houses do not always go up in value. I have friends who owe a million dollars for a home that today would sell for far less. 5. The greatest losses of all are those from missed opportunities. If all your money is tied up in your house, you may be forced to work harder because your money continues blowing out of the expense column instead of adding to the asset column, the classic middle-class cash flow pattern. If a young couple would put more money into their asset column early on, their later years would be easier. Their assets would have grown and would be available to help cover expenses. All too often, a house only serves as a vehicle for incurring a home equity loan to pay for mounting expenses. In summary, the end result in making a decision to own a house that is too expensive in lieu of starting an investment portfolio impacts an individual in at least the following three ways. 
One, loss of time during which other assets could have grown in value. Two, loss of additional capital which could have been invested instead of paying for high maintenance expenses related directly to the home. Three, loss of education. Too often, people count their house and savings and retirement plans as all they have in their asset column. Because they have no money to invest, they simply don't invest. This costs them investment experience. Most never become what the investment world calls a sophisticated investor. And the best investments are usually first sold to sophisticated investors, who then turn around and sell them to the people playing it safe. I am not saying don't buy a house. What I'm saying is that you should understand the difference between an asset and a liability. 